This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And we tell stories about everything here on this show. And if you would care to sign up for our newsletter, go to ouramericannetwork.org, and we'll promise you our five best stories of the week. Transcribed if you'd like to read them, and if you'd love to hear the terrific production values that we bring to each and every story, you can listen to them. Again, go to ouramericannetwork.org to sign up for our newsletter. Send us your email address and we'll give you our five best stories each week. We love to tell stories about everything here on this show, from the arts to history and to sports. And we love talking about, well, innovation and engineering. And the Lockheed SR-71, known as the Blackbird, is a long-range Mach 3 strategic reconnaissance aircraft that was operated by the U.S. Air Force from 1964 to 1998. At sustained speeds of more than Mach 3.2, the plane was faster than the Soviet Union's fastest interceptor, the MiG-25, which also could not reach the SR-71's altitude. During its service life, no SR-71 was ever shot down. And now we bring you to Major Brian Schull, U.S. Air Force retired, who relays the true story of a ground speed check while piloting the SR-71 Blackbird over Southern California. It's called the LA Speed Story. And I, it was just a story about one day it was really cool being, being SR-71 pilot. Walter and I were doing a training mission around the United States where you just were building up hours and time. And we take off out of Beale, hit a tanker in Idaho, rip on up to uh, Montana, zip across Denver, hang a right turn in Albuquerque, out over Los Angeles, up to Seattle, back into Sacramento, two hours, 21 minutes. And you just do that for, and you do it backwards, and you hit a tanker. It was just, just to gain crew coordination, get, build your hours. We're on our last training mission. We're over Tucson. I can see downtown LA from Tucson. We're at 89,000 feet. I can see the whole western United States bathed in a warm October fall glow. I can see the chain of Rocky Mountains from Canada to New Mexico. I could, I could just see the most beautiful picture laid at my feet in this air as smooth as glass, not a gauge moving in the cockpit. It was perfect. Now I'm thinking, we bad. <laughs> now I feel sorry for Walter because he has to monitor five radios in the back seat, so I flipped the switch up just to listen. and. L.A. Center is controlling, they control all, when you fly southwest there, the guy's controlling everybody. But we're above controlled airspace. So they have us on their scope, but they're not talking to us. Now there's controllers all over the country, Jacksonville Center, Chicago Center, Seattle Center, you know. It's the same guy. They all talk the same. And it's really cool the way they talk, because they make you feel important as a pilot. They don't just say, yeah, okay, here's your thing. They make you feel really cool. So sure enough, this was pre-GPS days. Some Cessna guy has to know his ground speed. Uh, LA Center Cessna, November Tango Alpha, you got a ground speed readout for us? Now, Center would like to say, who cares? Get off free. <laughs> but no, he'll talk to him like he's John Glenn. Cessna, November Alpha, we show you 90 knots, nine zero knots on the ground. And they do that sing-song, but that's how they talk. And it makes you feel kind of cool. Right after that, a twin bonanza came up to pimp the guy for speed, I guess. And, LA Center, Twin Beach, uh, whatever. You got a ground speed read up for us? And Center likes it. God, it's Friday. Why me? God, please, just get off. But he's going to talk to him like he's Air Force One. Twin Beach, shall we show you 121, two zero knots on the ground? And right after that, 
A Navy F-18 out of Lamar popped up on frequency. And you knew it was a Navy guy because he talked really slick on the radio. <laughs> Center Dusty 5-2 speed check. And I'm thinking, wait a minute. Dusty 5-2 has a ground speed indicator and that million dollar F-18 cockpit. It's right there in the heads up display. Why is he calling Center to broadcast his speed? <laughs> I get it. We are just the meanest, baddest, fastest military jet in the valley today. We're taking our little Hornet jet over Mount Whitney and ripping across Death Valley. We want everyone from Fresno to the coast to know what real speed is. And you can almost hear a little, a little glee in the controller's voice like, we have put an end to this. <laughs> Dusty 5-2, we show you 620, 620 knots across the ground. And it was that across the ground. See that little knife like, I hope nobody else has the nerve to get on frequency now. And there wasn't an airliner from Seattle to San Diego that wanted to be next on freak. It's sort of an etiquette thing amongst flyers. And a 12-year-old was reaching for the mic button. <laughs> and I thought, oh, no, wait, Walter's in charge of the radios. I flew single seat all those years, but I'm in the family model now. And I, I went, no, it's the Navy that must die and it must die now. And I, and I thought, no, but if I do, I, well, I'll upset Walter and I want us to be a good crew. And I, at that moment... I heard a click with the mic button in the back seat. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, Walter and I became a crew at that moment. <laughs> His best innocent voice, LA Center, Aspen 3-0. Have you got a ground speed readout for us? <laughs> you could almost hear a collective gasp on Freak, like all oh, the poor fools didn't hear the previous transmissions. Oh, they, they got crushed like a grape. It's, it's just a pilot thing. But Center had to give you that same voice. Aspen 30, we show you 1,992 knots <laughs> across the ground. When I knew I was going to like Walter a lot is when he came back and said, Center, we're showing a little closer to 2,000. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, we did not hear another transmission on that frequency all the way to the coast. The king of speed lived, the Navy had been flamed, and a crew had been formed. For just a moment, it was absolutely fun being the fastest guys on the block. And what a voice. And that is the sound of America's best. The humor. Well, that's what we love to do here on Our American Stories. Bring it direct to you. And that's, well, that's U.S. Air Force retired pilot Brian Schul telling a story and just, well, shooting it a little bit. And we bring it to you here on Our American Stories. And again, go to ouramericannetwork.org and sign up for our newsletter. And just as important, stories like this, we want to hear them from you. You're in the military, wherever you are, whatever walk of life, musician, teacher, share your story with us. We'll shoot it right back at you here on Our American Stories.
is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, where we love to bring you stories from every part of this great country. North, south, east, west, big cities, little towns, and everything in between. And today we bring you a story from a place called Midland, Texas, which got its name for being midway between two bigger places, Fort Worth and El Paso. And if Midland is known for anything, it's for the tremendous oil and gas resources that power our nation. And one of the leading energy entrepreneurs there is a guy by the name of Tim Dunn, who's been married to his wife, Terry, for over 40 years. And today brings us a story from his book, Yellow Balloons. I'm in that phase of having grandkids. We're having number 18 on the way now. That came from six children who are now all married. And we had six kids in nine years. And Mary Catherine, our oldest daughter, her uh, husband, Tim, and she moved to town. So Mary Catherine and Tim moved in with us. And they had two daughters, Wheatley, who was four at the time, and Mariah, who was about one. So... They lived with us while they were looking for a house. Then they found a house, but it was a fixer-upper. So they were going through fixing it up. So they ended up living with us for nine months. And during that time, of course, we got to see Mariah and Wheatley every day. And Mariah went from being a rug rat to a curtain climber to a toddler. She was a real joy as a kid. When there was a party of some kind, she would lap surf. She would go from lap to lap based on whatever food was in front of her. Whoever had the best goodies, that's whose lap she wanted to be in. Obviously, you're always attached to your grandkids, but this was more like our kid. Mariah had some fever-induced seizures, which means she'd get a low-grade fever and didn't have a seizure. So we got six kids, and five of them are in the oil business with us. But David was beat to his own drum. He's almost just like me, which means we butted heads all the way growing up. So um, I remember when he was a junior, he was like, you know, you're controlling me. You don't give me any freedom. And I said, here's what freedom is. You pay the rent. You pay the car payment. You pay your own insurance. And you will be free in 18 months. And I can't wait. And I saw his eyes get as big as saucers. We never had any more problems after that. <laughs> so David went and he got an engineering degree. And so his brother's really leaning on him to come back to us. We needed help really bad. But he decided he's going to be a musician. And he said, I just don't want to look back and wonder what I could have done. So he gave himself two years. And that was about 10 years ago now. One of his songs just won an award for a song of the year in Christian music called I Want to Go Back. When I was a kid, I was sure. I could run across the ocean Now I was gonna be an astronaut But it was you and it was me I had everything I needed Faith could even move a mountaintop And then I grew up And then I got older And my life got tough And we grew apart so David is in Nashville, and he's, he's the only one that's not with us. And, and he had really not been to Midland for about nine months. But he had a, an event that he was booked for, so he was in town. And he had a song on the radio at that time. His first song to play on the radio called 
Today is Beautiful. And it's a song about perspective. And here's where the song came from. It came from our family, all being at Disneyland. Our, our family likes to take big trips together. We discovered that if we'll pay, everybody comes. <laughs> so we were at Disneyland or Disney World, and Lee's kids at the time were about four and two, named Brady and Addie. So Addie was pushing the empty stroller, and Brady wanted to push that stroller, and Addie wouldn't let him. And so Brady just had a complete meltdown. There was a lot of laughing about that. Here we are at Disneyland, the happiest place on earth. Got all these rides around you, and here's this kid melting down because I can't push a stroller, something you can do anywhere on earth. And David in particular thought, you know, we kind of do that as humans. We're, we're in a Disneyland, really. The amazing opportunities we have in life, and we're melting down because of the bumper sticker on the car in front of us. We kind of do this to ourselves. So if we can lift your eyes and see it in a different light, you'll realize everything is beautiful. That's the core of the song. So he came to town, and Mariah and particularly really loved this song. And she couldn't speak well enough to sing the whole thing, but the chorus goes something like... That's how it goes. So she would say, eyes, light, sky. She would just do that one tag word on the end. And she called him Uncle Days. She couldn't date Dave, so it was a Days. So every time the song came on the radio, she would, Uncle Days, and she would sing along. So Uncle Dave was a big favorite. And, of course, he's the only out-of-town uncle, so he's a big favorite. So he came to town. So we went over to Becky's house. Mary Catherine was at her sister's house with Mariah. And... Mary Catherine was holding Mariah, and David said, Hey, Mariah. And Mariah was just not feeling like up to date. She had a really light grade fever. And so she just didn't feel too good. So we said, Oh, okay. Well, you know, she will go let her take a nap, and, and then we'll see her later. So I took Dave, and we had a new office building at the time, and I took him to go on a tour of the office. And I got a call from Terry that was, uh, you know, you got to come home right now. Mariah's not responsive. So we flipped around and went home and uh, realized that the ambulance we had passed was Mariah going to the hospital. And Terry had been outside going for a walk. And Mary Catherine was kind of keeping an eye on Mariah because of these fever-induced seizures. So she went in, looked, and Mariah was blue. So she screamed. Terry had just gotten back. She went in, immediately did CPR. They called the EMTs. They were there in five minutes. So really... They caught it in plenty of time. They got her color back. But we learned later that about 90% of the time with the little kids, they can't start their hearts. And that was it. They just couldn't restart her heart. So she's in a nap. She was perfectly fine. And she just died. So here we all are. And... You know, you have this immense tragedy. I knew that when couples lose kids, that the divorce rate's pretty high. So I immediately called our pastor and said, hey, we need help. Because uh, I, I don't want to see our family break up or see people, you know, families within our family break up. And he said, well, 
We're just bringing in this program called Grief Share, which I recommend. It helped our family immensely. But here's the bottom line. If you grieve together and you understand the way other people want to grieve and you grieve with them the way they want to grieve, you hurt more faster, but the event will bring you together. But the human tendency is to not want to have pain. So when the pain comes and it's your day to grieve, but not the other person's day, what tends to happen is the other person will withdraw because they don't want to feel that pain that day. So you get a little further apart. And then tomorrow it's their grief and you're okay that day. So you withdraw and people just drift apart because they wouldn't grieve together. And this is the way I personalized it. I'm an oil and gas investor, right? I understand investment. If you invest in other people's pain and grieve with them the way they want to grieve, you're investing in what's left, which is the relationships you still have. So what that looked like for me is every time, for, I mean, for months after, I, every time I saw somebody, they wanted to talk about Mariah's death. And, and they wanted to grieve with me. You know, it, it's a grief for them too. Now, from my standpoint, I didn't really want to grieve anymore. You know, I grieved enough. But you know what? Because of that perspective that my pastor gave us, I was able to say, I want to grieve with this person because I'm investing in this relationship. This is what remains. And when we continue, more of the story of Tim Dunn, Mariah, and so much more about life and living from this terrific American voice. Tim Dunn's story, his family's story, here on Our American Stories. To hear more stories like this, follow us on Facebook and go to our website at OurAmericanNetwork.org to sign up for our newsletter so that we can send you our best stories every week. More of Our American Stories after the break. Our American Stories, and we continue with the story of Tim Dunn. The book is Yellow Balloons, and it's about, well, it's about a loss, but it's also about how to live a life. And when we last left off, we were hearing about grief, and my goodness, what good good advice for anybody who is going through such a thing right now, a real tragic loss in the family, and how to deal with it with other people. But now we continue with the story of Tim Dunn's family, and Yellow Balloons, because, well, what I loved about this book is that it wasn't really about grief. It was about how to live a good life. What the book is really about is not grief, per se. It's how to choose a perspective. 
Because when something tragic like that happens to you, you're forced to choose a perspective. You're forced to think, well, how am I supposed to look at this? But really, every day, all day long, we're choosing a perspective. Most of the time, we're not even aware we're doing it. And if we are aware, we're not thinking to ourselves, what is the correct perspective? What's true? And, And the book mainly is about the power, the immense power, the overwhelming power to choose how we look at things. There's only three things we get to choose as humans. We get to choose who we trust, what we do, and how we look at things, our perspective, the perspective we choose. That's it. Now, we tend to try to control other people. We can influence other people. We can't control it. We can't make choices for other people. We try to control the weather. We get mad at the weather. We try to control traffic lights. We try to control all kinds of things, our sports teams. Here's my worst one. I try to control basketball officials. It's futile. Let me tell you, it doesn't work. (laughs) It doesn't work, and it makes me unhappy, and I lose. I've done it ever since I was a kid. I was a bad player. I would think about the refs instead of thinking about the game. It's counterproductive, okay? So really, the question is, what's, what's true about what's going on? And what our pastor helped us do then is choose a true perspective. But really, all day long, every day, we should be thinking to ourselves, what's the true perspective? In order to choose a true perspective, we have to decide, well, what do I believe in? And that's going to shape what we choose to do. And if we do that well, if we do that well, then we will have a great life, no matter what circumstances are, a great life that will go on forever. It it changes eternity when we do that well. If we don't do that well, it's self-induced destruction and it's misery. In the valley is really the only time you generally you're aware of your circumstances, <laughs> right? Because the, the circumstances make you be aware. And the valley is when difficulty comes, uh, disappointment. Your expectations are shattered. And I call it a Job-like experience after the biblical book of Job. But the valleys are the times really, usually when growth is most accessible because the circumstances force you to reflect and to decide, do I want to do something different from what I'm used to doing? But most of our life is lived on the plains, everyday routines, and we tend to not value those and not think of them as anything special. We tend to think of the valleys as times we want to avoid and the mountaintops, like when when things are great, when you had some success or achievement that you wanted to have that that's the desirable place and the plains don't really matter. But really, the plains is where most of life is lived. Uh, The word routine means is the derivative of a Latin root that means well-traveled. You know, it's it's where our habits are. And that's really where most of life's opportunity exists. And I, I I had a very tangible example of this that came to me through Mariah. She died on a Friday, and the Wednesday before she died, she was perfectly fine until she died in this nap, you know. And so Wednesday before she came, she's again, she's living with us. And she 
I was I was in the house by myself with her for some reason, and she came over to me and said, "Tramping, tramping," and I said, "You saying trampoline?" Yeah. So, well, do you want me to go out and bounce you on the trampoline? Yeah. So, okay. And so I went over and I opened the door, and she goes toddling out, kind of, you know, about a quarter out of balance, go popping out there. And so I bounced her on the trampoline for a while, and she giggled, and then. Our trampoline's built into the ground, so we can kind of child-proof it. <clears throat> so it's a, there's a hole underneath it. So she started getting under that hole and playing peekaboo with me. And every time she would pop up, she'd, you know, belly laugh. Oh, we might have done that for 20 minutes or something. It wasn't, it was just an everyday event. And, you know, and it's easy to say no to kids. It's, it's not usually something. But I always try to say yes, you know. Not long after, you know, my... Uh, uh, one of my four-year-olds asked me to play Hungry, Hungry Hippo. Really, what I thought inside was, I don't want to play Hungry, Hungry Hippo. But I said, sure, I'll go play Hungry, Hungry Hippo. So, you know, it was an everyday event. Well, it's really my last memory of Mariah. Okay, so you think, well, it was really special. Was it? Is it? Was it special? Yes, it actually was. But was it different than every other opportunity? No. Every opportunity you have to interact with another human, every opportunity you have, it's all special. If you can choose your perspective that way, then really all of life is this unbelievable, wonderful uh, adventure. Now, the Bible says uh, life is like a wisp of vapor. That's a comparative thing. Compared to how long we're going to exist, the life on this earth is not going to last very long. But it's the only time we'll get the opportunity to live where God's presence is veiled from us to enough extent where we can live by faith and make choices without any compulsion. You know, when you see something so clearly, you you don't really have a choice, right? Well, now things are kind of murky and you have to really think, you know, what's true? What perspective am I going to choose? So this life, although it's short, it's shaping who we become forevermore. And and that part of it's not, not, we can't ever... That's not repeatable. This is a one-shot deal. And if you look at those everyday routines like that, well, it puts a whole new spin on it. And then you have the mountaintops when things are, everything's wonderful, man. This is just what I want to have. But, you know, mountaintops are the most dangerous. First of all, if you become, let's say, extraordinarily wealthy, are wealthy people happier than everybody else? Is that what the statistics tell us? No, no. It, they're more fearful, typically, right? Because you're holding on. I got to stay up on this mountaintop. You know, I got to be. Well, you know, the mountaintops are a place where you can forget what reality is. You can kind of get the illusion that you do control things because you can kind of buy everything you want, right? But, you know, all trains just terrain. If, if you learn to look at it as, oh, you know, here I am. So now, how do I look at it? What's true? Who do I trust? What do I do? Now you're living out of your values and you're going to have success no matter what. And that was Tim Dunn. The book is Yellow Balloons. And my goodness, we love bringing ordinary stories from ordinary Americans to you, and particularly wisdom, which is a hard thing to come by these days. And there's a lot of wisdom in what Tim Dunn says. And whether you're a Christian, whether you're not, the values, the principles that he's talking about, my goodness. We all have something to learn from Tim. Again, his book is Yellow Balloons. You can go to timdunn.org, and that's Tim, D-U-N-N.org. 
Tim Dunn's story, his granddaughter Mariah's story, what a loss, but how to deal with grief, and that's everyone's story because it's coming around to everybody sooner or later. All of that, all of those stories here on Our American Stories. This is Our American Stories, and we've all heard of gunslingers Wild Bill Hickok, Doc Holliday, and Billy the Kid. These three quick-draw legends got nothing on the guy we're about to meet. Here's Greg Hengler with a story. We all know the classic cowboy film story where the bad guy shows up in town and picks a fight with the good guy. Well, you wouldn't want to pick a gunfight with the good guy you're about to meet. After all, if gunslinger Bob Munden would have existed in the Wild West, he would have simply been called Death. Bob Munden is one of the great characters in all the shooting sports. If you don't believe me, just ask him. I'm not perfect. Like I tell people all the time in jest, I'm not perfect. I'm just the closest thing you're going to get to it. And that's what I tell them, you know, and all in jest, of course, and I have fun with it. All jokes aside, Bob is the most decorated, fast-draw competitor of all time, a feat that earned him the title, the fastest gun who ever lived. It takes a human three-tenths of a second to blink. Bob can draw, cock, fire from his hip, it's called instinctive shooting, and reholster faster than an eye can blink. I first realized I, was, I had this ability when I first started shooting competition on electronic timers. The speed of my draw, to, to the mechanics of drawing and firing the gun, is uh, a one and three quarters, one hundredths of one second, or less than one half of one half of one tenth of one second, or just fast, whatever's easy for you to say. Here's Bob being interviewed at one of his fast draw competitions in 1986. You are known as one of the fastest gunslingers in the world. Yeah, well, as I, I'm listed in the Guinness Book of World Records as the fastest man with a gun who ever lived. Oh. There, are, there are 18 world records you can hold in this sport. I hold all 18 and have since 1960. Okay, now how, how do you compare to some of the, you know, the old Wild West heroes that we hear about and see on movies and stuff like that? And, uh, you know, how, uh, how they used to have, like, duels and draw against each other and... Well, as I said, I mean, there's not one incident recorded in history where two men faced off and drew guns at one another. The movies created fastball. It never happened in real life. Really? Mm -hmm. You mean no, no two guys went out there and decided to do that ever? No. Oh, I see. Shot. So it's a fabrication of the movies. How, huh? how, did, how did Bill Hickok die? I think it was shot in the back. That's the way they all died. I've taken what, they, what the movies have created and I've built a show around it. And I have pushed it. We've made a science of it. Fast draw is the fastest thing a human being does. 
nobody does anything faster than what I do with guns. Can you give it a comparison to something that would come close but is not as fast? Speed of light, which is far beyond it. Right. There is nothing next to it. Now you say, no, what are you talking about? I said, well, I mean, and then I have to show you. Okay. Ladies and gentlemen, the fastest gun in the world right here. In 2010, the 68-year-old Munden was tested by sports physiologist David Sandler, who is an expert in human movement and has studied the world's fastest people. Here's David. Yeah, basically we have a couple different kinds of accelerometers that we're going to place on Bob's hand. And so as Bob goes through the range of motion, we're going to pick up the actual acceleration of his hand and be able to determine velocity from that. We have the ability to measure in thousands of a second, so uh, hopefully we can, we can catch what's right. happening. You know, the human eye can't keep up with anything no, like no. that. No, no way. Ready? And three, two, one, go. Wow. Wow. That was incredible. So what's happening is your hand, when you do that pop, the max acceleration peak registers up here. You reach nearly 10 G of acceleration with your hand. Okay, what that means uh, in normal language is uh, it's incredibly fast. G stands for the force of gravity on Earth. Fighter pilots are tested to withstand a maximum of 9 Gs. But Bob's muscles, for a fraction of a second, are generating 10 Gs of force. But more incredibly, the results show that Bob can draw cock fire and reholster his gun faster than the reaction time in the average human brain. Human, human reaction is around two-tenths of a second. The whole, the actual action lasted less than a tenth of a second. No. What's that comparable to? Well, I've actually measured rattlesnakes before, and uh, he is faster than a rattlesnake. Looks like around six hundredths of a second to make the actual uh, movement itself, which is remarkable. I mean, unbelievable speed. But Bob wants to prove he's not only superhuman with his speed, but also with his accuracy. He sets up two targets six feet apart and attempts to hit both faster than the blink of an eye. Listen closely. He does it so quickly that you will not be able to hear two distinctive shots. Um, yeah, I'm going to bring the gun up, fire two shots, one for each target as fast as I can. Wow. And the gun must be cocked and fired for each shot. Yeah, so you've got to cock it, bang, cock it, aim yep, again, right. cock it, and bang. Yep. That was absolutely incredible. That was amazing. That was phenomenal. Two shots. I only heard one. Did you hear another one? I only heard one shot. That is amazing. That is unbelievable. And even on this graph, the shots even look kind of like one. I've never seen anything like this. Two shots in under a tenth of a second. A remarkable feat of dexterity and hand-eye control. Uh, just incredible. He, he is superhuman. I mean, bottom line is uh, he exceeds what every other human on this planet can do. So, you know, by definition, that would make him superhuman. But Bob doesn't work as a solo act. Wherever he is, so is his wife, Becky, also a world champion shooter. The two are married in 1964 after a three-month courtship. My life has revolved around my wife, my wife, Becky. I don't do anything without her, and I can't, I, can't, I don't even want to do anything without her. After winning every fast draw competition multiple times, 
Bob sought out new challenges. So Bob and Becky began performing together beginning in 1968, emphasizing the importance of gun safety. Here's Becky remembering the early days when they first started to tour with their fast draw trick shot show. Started traveling, uh, performing in 1969. So it's been quite a few years. And we uh, started out in a uh, station wagon. And we had our two daughters with us, four years old and two years old. And um, we put them in the back with their toys. And we had all of our equipment in the middle seat, you know. And then uh, we were in the front. And we did school assembly programs. Becky may be the only person who can keep Bob in check. I, I guess that's why I'm around, too. <laughs> uh, humble him a little bit once in a while so he's, you know, his, uh, his hat doesn't get too tight. The Mundans have performed in convention centers, malls, and car dealerships. We've done shows at um, amusement parks in uh, New Jersey and New York, and they had no idea that you could shoot a gun and not kill somebody. I mean, really, it's astounding, but they're out there. So uh, we're, we're able to talk to people and, and maybe uh, soften the image of the, of the handgun. We're proud that uh, we can represent the shooting sports in our own way and maybe introduce them to people that don't even know they're out there. After years of traveling, the Mundans spend less time on the road and more time in their Butte, Montana home. This open land is the perfect place for the California natives to do what they do. Well, first of all, we got the freedom to do what we do. There's nobody saying, well, you can't do this, can't do that. California, if it's not illegal, it costs you, as an example. Whether it's trick shooting or gunslinging, Bob learned early on he would need the right equipment to keep up with his talents. Bob would get this equipment by building it himself, custom-made Colt 45 single-action revolvers. This skill would become Bob's second career. So through the process of trial and error and changing the gun around, the lock system and so on, then I learned how to build guns for my own purpose first. And then other people started asking me to do their guns because my guns were so efficient. Those other people include fellow shooters and celebrities like Kurt Russell, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, and Randy Travis. Piece by piece, part by part, Bob files, grinds, and trims nearly every piece of the Colt until he can dry fire the gun without any friction or flaws in the action. But when they come out of the factory, remember the factories, their job is just to get them where they work safely and uh, right out of the factory. But that doesn't mean they work right. It doesn't mean they're, they're, just, they're just guns that are, that are production guns. When I pick up a gun, I pick it up and I think, well, you've got some problems here. I kind of feel like a doctor, a surgeon. When I pick up a gun, I say, well, okay, baby, you've got problems, but I'm going to fix you. I'm going to make you perfect. Until his death from a heart attack on December 10, 2012, 70-year-old Bob Munden was in his shop on a regular basis doing action and trigger work on single actions, Smith & Wesson double actions, and Bond Derringers. A public celebration at Butte Gun Club for Bob Munden took place on Saturday, June 12, 2013. A six-gun salute began at high noon, in keeping with the tradition in Western movies. Under a beautiful sky, Bob's wife of almost 50 years started things off by stepping up to the firing line and fanning off five rounds. Family members and special guests use single-action revolvers to complete the 70-shot salute, one for every year 
of Bob's life. I'm Greg Hengler, and this is Our American Stories. And great job on that, Greg. The fastest gun who ever lived. Bob Munden's story here on Our American Stories. And to hear all that we do, go to ouramericannetwork.org and sign up for our free newsletter. You'll get the best five stories each week. Again, that's ouramericannetwork.org. Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything here on this show. And this next story is about a subject called homelessness. And it's a serious social crisis that's mostly underreported in this country. Mark Horvath has experienced the highs and lows of the American dream, from a successful career in television to barely surviving homeless and addicted on Hollywood Boulevard. But he found his voice when he founded Invisible People and hit the streets armed with a digital camera and a smartphone to talk to homeless people about their own experiences. Today, he's the online voice of his cause, and he's bringing their stories to millions on Twitter, Facebook, and YouTube. Today, Mark is hearing Dennis's story. Dennis says homelessness used to be that person you didn't know. Now... Homelessness is your sons or your daughters, your sisters or your fathers. Here's Mark. Dennis. Yes. We're here in Los Angeles. Yes, we are. You're homeless. Yeah, unfortunately. Tell me about it. Um, well, through a uh, avalanche of unfortunate events um, and a bad relationship, which wiped me out financially, I ended up being um, a working actor. Um, uh, actually uh, big fish in a small pond out here in uh, California and regionally uh, moved to New York into an apartment that I couldn't afford and after three years my partner split and wiped me out financially and so uh, I had to start again and of course you know when you're when you're in that state you know and uh, you don't have anywhere to really turn to my mother my mother I have family out here of course my mom uh, is uh, in a senior living situation where if she doesn't need constant care, um, uh, I don't qualify for the age requirements to live in the facility. So I would get jobs, various odd jobs, like uh, you know, working at a restaurant um, during graveyard shifts, and um, you know, come home at like three, four, five in the morning in dark clothes and a rolling duffel bag, just in case I missed the bus. And uh, people in the environment thought that I was going to be there to burglarize them or rape them or kill oh, them. Geez. So I had to, uh, I had to leave. The, the manager gave her an ultimatum. They said either you leave or your son leaves. And so I, uh, of course, my mom, you know, can't be on the streets, and it, there was no question there. So I, I, I went out, and um, I had a car. I had a car that was given to me by uh, a boss. I was singing at a church, and a boss of mine, uh, actually a guardian angel. Um, took me under his wing and gave me one of his old cars. And um, that was great, except it started to break down very soon. And uh, I couldn't afford the registration. 
and I couldn't see paying the registration on a car that wasn't running. So I kind of found an area where I kind of did a lot of business um, at a theater, a local theater in Orange County, and um, I was parking on the streets. And uh, So you're living in a broke down car? I was living in a broke down car. Yeah, uh, many, of us, many of us do. I was in that car off and on for the better part of a year and a half. Wow. Um, yeah, I lived in a kitchen pantry for a little while. I lived in a garage on a pool table for a little while. Wow. Um, and then there were several months where I was actually on the streets, on the streets. And uh, that's kind of what I'm facing now as um, I became a driver for the Lyft Corporation. Uh, Lyft is like Uber. And um, I had a rental car through Hertz, but one of my local street chums decided that they wanted to take off with my car. So unfortunately, um, you know, we're trying to locate it and locate them, but hopes aren't very high. Uh, hope is in short supply when you're in kind of my position. Yeah, and that's going to hurt your credit and everything else. Hurts your credit, else. hurts everything. But, but what hurts the most is, you know, the friends and the family that used to be there um, that when you get into this situation, um, everybody just chalks it up to drug abuse or bad choices. And, um, Sorry. Um, it's not always the case. Sometimes it's just the choice is made for you and you don't have any choice. So, um, other than hope, I guess, that some things will change. Thanks. Sometimes you, you work all you can. Everybody makes bad choices. You, you yeah. do everything you can, and it's like the world's fighting against you. Yeah. And you can't give up. Yeah, I guess so. I keep trying. I keep trying. I, was, I hope it's not in vain. I was out here 23 years ago for bunches and bunches of years. Yeah. So. I think you. No, no. You can't give up. Live in hope. You know, everybody deserves a second chance. You know, sometimes three, four, or five second chances. Yeah. And, you know, it's not easy out here. You know, when the economy tanked and. You know, gas prices went up and food went up and everything's, you know, they say that the recession is over, but you don't really see much of the effect in the daily dollar, you know, and it's still hurting us greatly. There are, there are programs in place like EBT and, you know, food stamps and things like that, but anybody who knows anything can't live off of $187 a month on food that you can't have a refrigerator for or an oven or a microwave or we don't have the amenities of home. Right. So you buy things with preservatives, things that don't go bad, things that, you know, keep well on the streets in different temperatures and climates, and most of the time it gets stolen anyway, because even amongst the streets you have people who are taking whatever you have. Um, well, you're in pretty good spirits. I try. going through all this. I try. What would you want people to know about homelessness that they probably yeah. wouldn't know or they stereotype that's wrong? Right. Well, um, you know, everybody, homeless people used to have, it used to be the class system. Um, homeless people used to be that person that you didn't know that would talk to themselves or that didn't bathe in the corner of a doorway that everybody just walked by and overlooked. Oh, there's my bus. That's okay, though. Um, and everybody would just overlook. Um, but uh, they're now your sons or your daughters, your sister, your brother, your cousins. Somebody in your family, the way that it's going, at some point in time, somebody in your family is going to be homeless. And um, 
if you think about that person that you overlooked in the past um, and that were a member of your family, I would hope that you would have the heart and the humanity to do something different. And you've been listening to Dennis, and he's a, a homeless person in L.A. And Mark Horavath, well, he's the one doing the interviewing. And the project is called Invisible People. It's a 501c3 dedicated to educating the public about homelessness through storytelling, news, and advocacy. For more, search Invisible People on YouTube or go to their website, Invisible People TV. Mark Horvath's story, Dennis's story, and homelessness, the story of homelessness here in this country, here on Our American Stories. This is Our American Stories, and this next one is one of our favorites, and it's one of the quintessential American stories, yet chances are many of you have never even heard of this man's name. He had over 250 kills in World War II. He is America's most decorated soldier, having received every award, citation, and decoration the Army could give, including the Medal of Honor. All before he turned 20, though he looked 14. He became a movie star and wrote 17 songs, which were recorded by guys like Dean Martin, Eddie Fisher, Porter Wagner, Jimmy Dean, and Charlie Pride. He wrote a best-selling autobiography and starred in its film adaptation, which became Universal Studios' highest-grossing film for 20 years, until Jaws broke its record in 1975. His grave is the second most visited at Arlington National Cemetery. JFK's is the first. Yet this 5'5", 110-pound baby-faced hero is practically unknown in America today which is astonishing considering just 50-plus years ago, he received more fan mail than any other celebrity in Hollywood. To find out more about this American hero, let's take a listen to the man who wrote the book. Dr. David A. Smith is an American history professor at Baylor University in Waco, Texas. He wrote, The Price of Valor, The Life of Audie Murphy, America's Most Decorated Hero of World War II. I asked him, who is Audie Murphy? It's interesting because nobody else in American history combines these two sort of archetypal roles as he does. I mean, he's the most decorated soldier from the biggest war we've ever fought. And at the same time, or right after, he was a movie star. At a time in Hollywood when movie stars had a cultural cachet that they would never have again. And one of the things that I find so fascinating about him is that he brings these roles together. He brings together the role of genuine hero and celebrity, and they don't match. They don't match at all. I mean, a hero is a very particular thing. A, a hero is an important cultural element within any culture. A hero is how we learn what virtue is. 
I mean, a hero is someone who, for a small amount of time, embodies a particular virtue. I mean, a virtue is an idea, and we have trouble you know, relating to it until we see it in the flesh. And that's what a hero is. And that's what he was first. Selflessness, determination, duty, patriotism, that whole bit. And then, gosh, then he becomes a movie star. And he hated being a movie star. He didn't like movie stars. His first wife, to whom he was married for just a year, wanted to be a movie star badly. And that's what she was in Hollywood for. And that's what drove them apart because he hated Hollywood. He hated the phoniness of celebrity. And he, he disparaged his own talents. He refused to hang around other actors, mostly. When he was on the set, he would hang around with the horse wranglers and the stuntmen and the props guys. And it's fascinating to me that here, in this one person, you have extreme heroism and extreme celebrity trying to mix. And his story is a story of how we've confused them today. In mythology and legend, a hero is a man of divine ancestry who is endowed with great courage and strength, celebrated for his brave exploits and favored by the gods. In reality, Audie was all these things. But as to the part of ancestry, it was far from divine. Here's Joanne Mattern, author of Audie Murphy, Fact or Fiction. Audie Murphy was born on June 20th, 1925, and he was born in a little town called Kingston, Texas. His parents were sharecroppers, and um, that means that they uh, picked cotton in fields, but they didn't own the fields. The fields were owned by someone else. And in return for working, all they got was uh, a little shack to live in and a tiny little bit of the money that they earned. Everything else went to the owner of the field. The house they lived in was no more than a little shack. It had no running water, no bathrooms, no electricity. They had 12 children all together. And as soon as the kids were old enough, maybe four or five years old, they went to work in the cotton fields with their parents. Audie later said that he just worked and that it was a full-time job just existing. In fact, when Audie was born, his mother, Josie, couldn't take time off to take care of the baby So she put him in a baby swing and took him out in the cotton fields with her. Audie's father, his name was Emmett, and Emmett, he was pretty lazy, more interested in in gambling and having a good time. And the only time they got any meat to eat was if Audie and his brothers went out and hunted them. A neighbor once lent Audie his gun, and it had eight bullets in it. And Audie went hunting, came back with four rabbits, and four bullets still left in the gun. That's how good a shot he was. Here's Audie's sister, Nadine Murphy. He got a little old 22, I don't know where, but he was really good at it. He could kill a rabbit on the run. Well, that's how we, that's how we lived, Dad. That's how we ate. He would go out and kill squirrels and rabbits. And uh, I guess we could say we're alive today because of him. He was my hero even then, before he ever did anything great. He was great to me then. Here again is Dr. Smith. One of the things that defines him throughout his entire life is his sense of duty to the people who are depending on him. He felt his duty toward his younger siblings 
in a profound way. Times were beginning to unfold that would shape his destiny forever. The country was in the throes of the Great Depression, and at one point things got so bad for the Murphys that they moved into a railroad boxcar. When he was 13 years old, his father left the family and he never came back. So now Audie had to step up and be the man of the house. And in order to do that, he had to quit school. So he never got farther than the fifth grade. But the person that was hardest hit in the family was his mother, Josie. And in 1941, she died of pneumonia. And he said her early death was not unusual in the story of a, of a sharecropper family, uh, particularly when the sharecropper himself runs off, leaving his wife to take care of their children. Anyway, so Audie was only 16. He had younger sisters and a brother to take care of, and he couldn't take care of them because he had to work. So they were sent to an orphanage. And then everything changed. Everything changed. Here's Murphy historian Michael West. Well, the time that the Japanese bombed Pearl Harbor, December 7th, I believe Audie Murphy and Monroe Hackney were actually on a double date at a movie theater. And after they returned from the movie theater, they learned, of course, of, of the bombing. Well, immediately, all the young men, or a number of the young men, chose to, to join. Well, that included Audie Murphy as well. Well, at that time, Audie was only about 17 and a half years old, plus he was plagued with that baby face. And immediately, uh, the recruiters recognize that he's too young. Uh, he tries the Marines. They virtually laugh him out. He uh, has visions of joining the paratroopers. Well, that, that never works out. So finally, he is uh, just simply run off, in essence, and he, he doesn't join. So Audie's older sister, Corinne, got him a false birth certificate that showed he was a year older than he was. So after he turned 18, as it said on his birth certificate, he was actually only 17, he went back and joined the Army, and he was accepted into the infantry. And what a story so far. I'd been a fan of the movie, but just didn't know. Just didn't know the circumstances, my goodness. Losing a father and a mother, and then having kids orphaned, living out of a boxcar. And when we come back, more from these great historians... More on this remarkable life, the life of Audie Murphy, here on Our American Stories. And if you get a chance, go to OurAmericanNetwork.org. We've done a couple of hundred hours now on this day's in histories, on just pure stories, and particularly soldiers' stories. Art Dick Winter's story from Band of Brothers, his life. You'll hear from him from the grave. When we come back, more on the life of Audie Murphy... This is Our American Stories.
Kentucky, just a Texas farmer lad. His country found itself at war, and he tried to lend a hand. He volunteered to fight and die for freedom with a smile. He was too young to carry a gun, and he had to wait a while. Eighteen and tried again. This time they let him in. The soldiers called him Babyface, and he took it with a grin. But he told the men of the fighting third, "Don't judge me by my size. I may be small, but I bet you all I spit in the Germans' eyes." This is our American stories. We're listening to Wiley J. Smith's Ballad of Audie Murphy. And if you've never seen the movie, to Helen Back. It comes on TV all the time. Don't skip it. It's terrific. And it should be a remake. His life story should be a remake. So everybody today knows who he is. But let's go back to the story, back to Audie Murphy's life. The Army Infantry was the most accepting of recruits who appeared to possess the least amount of skills needed for combat. Audie Murphy attended two boot camps before seeing any action, and in both camps, the Army tried to protect the little recruit they nicknamed Baby. They tried to put him in their post office and then their kitchen, but Audie would have none of it. Nobody pushed him around. I mean, he, he was impressively tough from the very beginning, and he would literally push himself until he collapsed. The guys he met there at boot camp remembered that he was clearly in his element, even though he was small of stature, even though he was baby-faced. And uh, his superiors wanted to find some place for him that he might be a better fit, because honestly, he wasn't a good fit in the infantry until you got to know him. And he said, absolutely not. I want to be in the infantry. I want to march with this pack that's as big as I am, and I'm going to do it. And his superiors reluctantly let him stay, but they made a good decision. Audie was assigned to Company B, the 15th Infantry Regiment, 3rd Division. No one could know that this poor tenant farmer's son would one day help to cause the demise of Hitler's promised thousand-year Reich by performing such wondrous deeds in battle that they seemed almost mythological. Here's one of them. The first time he goes into combat with the 3rd Division is in the invasion of Sicily. And Laddie Tipton is a soldier in his company, and, and they are extremely close. Laddie has an estranged wife and a daughter. And Audie Murphy, I don't know if I want to say envies him for this, but Audie Murphy realizes how special this is to have a wife and a daughter because he, you know, he doesn't have much in the way of family. And he talks to Laddie about his daughter all the time and says, you know, you're going to get back to see her, you're going to get back to her, you're going to be a great father. And then, you know, they come ashore in France together in August of 44, and they're fighting their way up this hill. He and Laddie, they're working their way up this hill in the face of a whole repeated series of German machine gun emplacements. And they, they get one German foxhole to surrender to them. And they, they wave a white flag. And Laddie says, okay, they're surrendering. We can go get them. And, and Audie says, no, 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 stay down. There are other people up there. And a German sniper from someplace else up on the hill hits Laddie in the head with a bullet. And he collapses right down into Audie's lap. And he sort of, I don't want to say goes 
nuts, but he grabs a gun and just charges up this hill in and out of draws and in and out of foxholes, and then he gets a German gun and goes after other foxholes, and he clears out that entire hillside. And everybody says, oh, that was the most courageous thing I had ever seen. And he says, that wasn't courage. That was just me being mad. And, you know, he goes back to Laddie to where his body is, and, and he, he cries over him. It's just a, a heartbreaking scene, but it wins him his Distinguished Service Cross. The Distinguished Service Cross is the second highest military award after the Medal of Honor. And that was one of the only two moments in Audie's life he openly admitted to crying, the other being the death of his mother. Here's Dr. Smith with the heroic act that would earn Audie Murphy the Congressional Medal of Honor and the respect and love of the United States of America. The story of his Medal of Honor is probably the most impressive story that you may hear from World War II. He's in France. He's coming up to the German border. It's wintertime. There's snow on the ground. It's icy cold. And he's, he's leading a couple of tanks and a platoon of soldiers southward toward a town. And from the town toward him comes a company of German soldiers, maybe more, maybe of Italian, and, and two tanks. What he has with him are a couple of things that look like tanks, but they're called tank destroyers. They're faster and they're lighter than tanks, and they're meant to be able to shoot tanks and then get away. But both of those tank destroyers are knocked out of commission really early on in this firefight. And he realizes that without those tank destroyers to give his men cover, it's going to be incredibly hard for them to continue their push south across the snowy field. And he orders his men to start to fall back toward the forest. And he stays out at the front point of the position because he has a radio and he's calling in artillery from the rear. And he's telling, you know, where to drop the artillery rounds. And he was always very good at this, which serves him very well. And he realizes that if the Germans overrun this position that he has, they will go straight to the headquarters of his company and overrun their entire position. And then he realizes that over to his right, the tank that's been knocked out of commission and that the men inside are dead, he realizes that the 50 caliber gun up on the top of it, up on the turret, is still operable. And he climbs up on this tank and he, he trains the gun on the Germans coming across the field toward him. And the tank is burning, so it's producing a lot of smoke and it masks his position, it gives him cover, it's like a smoke screen. And he, he swivels back and forth with this 50 caliber, shooting at these German soldiers that are coming across the field and getting really close. And he thought that the Germans had no idea where he was because they couldn't see him, number one, and they wouldn't even believe that somebody would be fool enough to be up on top of a burning tank shooting at them. Later he said, I remember being up on there and the thought I had was, this is the first time my feet have been warm for three months. And there's that story, and I think it's true, that you know he's up on this tank with his right hand on the gun, with his left hand holding the radio to his ear, yelling for artillery support. And across the radio comes the question, how close are they to your position? How close are they? Out of the fun, I'll let you talk to them! And his response is, if you'll just hold the line, I'll let you talk to one of them. 
it gets to the point where the shells coming in are kicking him around. They're hitting so close to him. And finally, finally they, they begin to pull back. And, and he realizes that the Germans are withdrawing. And he climbs down off this tank and he's shaking. And he walks over to a tree and he leans against the tree and he just slumps down to the ground. And right about that time, the tank he was standing on explodes. And it blows that turret, you know, way up into the air and off into the woods. And, and the people who watched this, the people who filled out the reports for him, the eyewitness reports for him to get the Medal of Honor, said they had never even seen anything like it. They couldn't believe it, and they saw it. They couldn't believe it, and they saw it. And when we come back, more of this remarkable story, Audie Murphy's story, here on Our American Stories, the final segment of this remarkable life, this remarkable man. Though he was badly wounded, Audie never left his gun. He killed 240 men and made the Germans run. And when the fight was over, the men all gathered round to shake the hand of the Texas man that backed the Germans down. sent for him when he heard what he had done gave him the highest honor our country has to give he said you didn't fight in vain as long as freedom lives shutters and boards cover the windows of the house where we Shutters and boards cover the windows of the house where we used to live. All I have left is a heart full of sorrow since she said she'd never forgive. The house that we built was once filled with laughter. But I changed that laughter to tears And now I live in a world without sunshine Oh, how I wish you were here And this is Our American Stories. You're listening to Dean Martin singing an original composition written by none other than Audie Murphy. Then let's return to the story of the most decorated soldier ever in American history. If you happen to end up in a foxhole with Audie Murphy, he was going to talk to you. And what you might hear is not what you'd think. A little, a guy who's just scared to death all the time finds himself sitting in a foxhole with Audie Murphy. And Audie says to him, you know, don't be afraid to be scared. There's going to be times when you're scared to death. And then Audie tells this kid, I'm always scared when I'm at the front. And it's, it's, the irony is that everybody else in the division says, when we hear that Audie Murphy's in the front, the rest of us in the rear can go to sleep and sleep well. But Audie tells this kid, you know, there'll be times when you want to cry, and it's okay to cry. I mean, Audie transforms very much over the course of his time as a soldier from someone who has nothing but disdain, you know, sort of like 
patent style for people who can't take it and who break under combat to somebody who understands intimately how how harrowing it is and what it can do to somebody. With attendance in the thousands, Murphy received his Medal of Honor in the Austrian city of Salzburg. Now this is in uh, May of 45. It's at an airfield just outside of Salzburg. He, he has this survivor's guilt already. Yes, he's, he's a brave soldier, but the guys who were killed, and he's always going to say this, those are the ones who deserve the medals. Those are the ones who deserve the honor. When you see the photographs of him standing there, you think, this guy's just a kid. Well, he, he sort of is. Thanks to Life magazine putting Audie on its cover, he returned an American hero. I asked Dr. Smith to put into context what it meant to grace the cover of Life magazine in the 1940s. There's nothing today, and I think about this sometimes, I, I can't think of anything today that is analogous to Life magazine in 1945. There's nothing that has the cultural centrality. There's nothing that in one magazine, in one photograph, can make you a national icon. But Life magazine was like that. But it's this cover, and it shows him looking like a high school football quarterback in a military uniform. He's evidently young. He looks, and I think this is important, he looks completely unscarred by his past. He looks as fresh-faced as if he was fresh out of high school, and of course he's not. And you, you can't tell at all by looking that this guy killed, you know, 250 soldiers. This guy was shot repeatedly. This guy was 50% disabled, according to the U.S. Army. And, and this guy's carrying around, already carrying around some, some terrible emotional baggage that's keeping him from sleeping at night. But there he is on the cover of Life magazine, looking like a Norman Rockwell figure come to life. One of Hollywood's biggest movie stars saw Audie Murphy on the cover of Life magazine and picked up the phone. Here again is Joanne Mattern. There was a famous actor named Jimmy Cagney, and Jimmy Cagney saw all the press about Audie, saw his picture, and said, hey, this guy should be in the movies. So he invited Audie to come to Hollywood and try to be a movie star. And Audie even lived with him for a while. But his acting career didn't really take off, so he ended up sleeping in a gym that a friend of his owned and kind of bounced around a little bit. But then in 1949, he wrote a book called To Hell and Back. And that was all about his experiences in the war. To Hell and Back was a huge bestseller, and Universal Studios decided to make it into a movie, and they wanted Audie to star as himself. And Audie said no. He said, I don't want the public to think I'm trying to be famous by, by saying, look at me, I'm a war hero. But eventually he changed his mind because he felt that he could show how brave all the soldiers were who, who had fought and who had died and kind of do a tribute to them through the movie. And he also wanted to make sure the movie was as realistic as possible. And starring in it meant that he could have some say in how the battles were staged and the uniforms and how the actors behaved as the soldiers. So he ended up doing it. The movie came out in 1955. It was a huge hit. It was actually Universal Studios' highest earning movie until 1975 when the movie Jaws came out. He went on and did some movies and some television after that, but that was really the high point. Although Audie's high point was very public, 
Audie's low point was more private. But while this, all this was going on off screen, Audie, it was very difficult for him. Nowadays, we would understand that he had post-traumatic stress disorder from his time in battle. But during the 50s and the 60s, that term didn't exist yet, and people weren't really aware of it. So Audie actually, in the 60s, he started to speak out about how he felt that, you know, he had trouble sleeping. Every time he heard a loud noise, he would jump. He slept with a gun under his pillow. When he went out in public, when he was driving down the road, he was constantly looking for danger, you know, looking for something to jump out at him. And he said to be trained to kill and then come back into civilian life and be alone in a crowd, it takes an awful long time to get over it. He never really did get over it, but he tried to help others through his experiences. Here's Audie's friend, film director Bud Bedeker on Audie's struggle with PTSD. He called me one day. And he said, uh, I'm sitting here with my 45. The picture's in good shape. Don't worry about a thing. I'm going to blow my brains out. And I had two seconds. And I said, that's really great. He said, what do you mean? I said, why don't you do that? He said, what do you mean? I said, do it for every kid in the country who thinks you're the greatest fellow who ever lived. That'll make everybody in the United States. Go ahead and pull the trigger. He said, you son of a bitch. And he hung up. Audie's life clearly defined who he was and what he stood for. His death was no different. In 1971, Audie Murphy was flying on a small plane, and the plane crashed, and he was killed. He was 45 years old. And because he was a war veteran and a hero, he was buried at Arlington National Cemetery with full military honors. And generally, if you are a Medal of Honor winner, your gravestone at Arlington the lettering is done in gold trim. It's very sparkly, it's very eye-catching. And Audie didn't want that. He just has a plain gravestone and it just lists his name. It's very plain, very brief, doesn't really give any indication of what a hero he was. And he's the second most visited grave at Arlington Cemetery, the first one being President John Kennedy's grave is the most popular, and Audie's number two. American news anchor Tom Brokaw wrote the introduction for Murphy's autobiography to Helen Beck. Here's how he concludes. I was first aware of Murphy as a war hero. He was on the cover of Life magazine when I was a youngster. Not long before his untimely death in an airplane accident, I was working in California when Audie Murphy came back into the news. A woman friend of his had sent her dog to a trainer and she wasn't happy with the results. As I recall, she asked Audie to intervene. He visited the dog trainer who then complained to the police that Murphy had shot at him. The local police brought Murphy in for questioning, and when Murphy was released without charges, a large number of reporters were outside the police station. Murphy agreed to take a few questions. One of the reporters asked, Audie, did you shoot at the guy? Audie Murphy, the most decorated combat veteran of World War II, stared at his interrogator for a moment and then said in that familiar Texas voice, If I had, you think I would have missed? I love that moment and all that Audie Murphy stood for as a citizen, a soldier, and a hero. Tom Brokaw. This is Greg Hengler, and this is Our American Stories. And great job on that, Greg. And again, 250 
confirmed kills. One man, humble beginnings, humble in birth, and humble in death. If you've never been to Arlington, by the way, Arlington National Cemetery, you must go, you must take the family. As solemn, as beautiful a place as you'll ever see amidst this busy city, there's just this space. And boy, no one talks, no one laughs, and no one's goofing off. You watch kids put the phones away. You watch human beings just respect, respect the sacrifices made. And there is Audie Murphy's gravestone. I've seen it. I've been in front of it. And it's just, it's nothing. I mean, it's just like everyone else's. And it was a remarkable thing to not have that special lettering there. Many Medal of Honor winners choose it. And Murphy just didn't want to be different than the rest of the guys. And, well, he's received every award, every citation, including the Medal of Honor, all before, again, he turned 20 years old. The baby. He looked 14, they said over and over again. Remember also that he wrote 17 songs. Dean Martin, Eddie Fisher, Porter Wagoner, Jimmy Dean, Charlie Pride. And we're going to bump out with this Jerry Wallace cover of Audie Murphy's When the Wind Blows in Chicago. This is Lee Habib, Audie Murphy's story, here on Our American Story. Oh, why won't it let me forget? 